Welcome to Generation Ag, a podcast for the future of agriculture. I'm Kayla. And I'm Lavinia. And we're a couple of young Aggies passionate about celebrating our industry and sharing the stories of people who work in it. Welcome to the first episode in partnership with the Southern Rangelands and the Future Drought Fund. The WA Southern Rangelands encompass all of the land area south of the Pilbara, excluding the agricultural zone of the Southwest Land Division. The Southern Rangelands Pastoral Alliance was formed to provide leadership and support for sustainable pastoral production and diversification in the Southern Rangelands. We just had the fantastic opportunity to go into the Southern Rangelands, spend a couple of days meet some incredible pastoralists and learn about what they're doing to manage their resources. I think if everyone wants to rewind a couple of months back, we were putting up some interesting Instagram stories, but not really saying too much about where we were and what we were doing. Well, this was that whirlwind chaotic trip and it was pretty amazing. It was, for me, a once in a lifetime opportunity. I think what an incredible insight into what these people are doing out in the Southern Rangelands and just how innovative they are and how they use their ingenuity to solve problems every single day and to continue to farm, which is what we all love doing. Absolutely. So on our first episode, we went to two properties, Prenti Down and Euthapena Station. Tell us a little bit about this, Kayla. So for these guys, technology is vastly becoming one of the biggest tools for arid stations to survive and thrive during these changing times and climates. Yeah, it was a pretty interesting experience. And on our first station, we actually chatted with Jack and his wife, Jasmine, who are on one of the most remote stations in the Midwest. It was a full day trip. Up, well, actually, it took two days to get up there and a day back to Mekathara. We did lots of driving. In this conversation, we chat with how Jack has integrated their remote watering monitoring system and gate monitoring and provided Wi-Fi connection throughout their station. It was pretty amazing to see how much connection they had, right? Absolutely. And I think to see the way that Jack has just, again, used his own skill and his own ingenuity to basically build his own system on the farm to, again, solve a problem. And to see that was just incredible. And by the way, absolutely the best landscape of the entire trip. What an absolute delight to go and visit them out there. So, so remote. I think if you look at the pin on the map, we were literally right in the middle of the word Western Australia on Google Maps. Yes, definitely. It was pretty insane. Tell us about yourself. Tell us how you ended up on a station from Cascade. Well, it's a bit of a long story, but we can summarise it pretty easily. Our Esperance farm is out at Cascade and it's near Munglinup and there used to be a mine next to the farm and dad got involved in that and he started to go further into it and ended up setting a mine up near Alice Springs. So started to get a bit of an idea about station country and and the environment because when he was younger, they used to have cattle that they brought off stations up in the north and out at Wagen. So he always thought that that'd be a good way to retire and we ended up in 2014 buying the station mm-hmm. and I came from precision and background. I was living in Ballarat, working for a John Deere dealership. Yeah. Got the phone call saying, hey, do you want to come home? And 
you know, help look at the station and do the takeover. And I just never went back. That's amazing. Talk for the listener's benefit, tell us where are we <laughs> geographically? We are in the Shire of Waluna, the very northern edge of the goldfields. 300 k's from Waluna, 300 k's from Laverton, essentially. Yeah, we're close to the middle, not quite, of WA. Our largest geographical feature that you can pinpoint us off is Lake Carnegie, which the station surrounds, and we've got 50,000 hectares of you know, salt lake that's excised from the station in the middle. And some exciting things we've had with that is we had a one-in-a-thousand-year flood event which actually filled the lake up to a point where it was fresh water. So that was incredible to see and hard to believe. So tell us about your station because you guys have a pretty unique situation which we've been able to view. Tell us a little bit about the scope, the size, but also the last couple of years since you've been here and some of the tech that you guys have been able to implement. So it's a 400,000 hectare property, so just over 1 million acres for the old terms. And just casually. Yeah. <laughs> so it's quite a large area and it's not a square. It's a bit of an odd shape with odd assortment of squares and rectangles put together. So that posed a few challenges, but the biggest issue we really had when we came in, but it was also an opportunity, is... We are one of the easternmost stations in the state. So there is no fence out to the east and it is just out into the desert. So we end up with a lot of ferals coming in, so a lot of camels coming in. The first sort of tech we started to implement was managing our water in a more efficient manner. So we eliminated overflows and runoff, leaky troughs. We moved to big concrete troughs, new tanks, and we started to put in self-mustering yards so we could reduce the cost of mustering, but also the stress on the animals. It allowed us to do it with a smaller crew. And that, again, is just cutting our costs down. Mm. Talk to us a bit more about that journey. Obviously, we're here today to talk about technology and the way you guys are implementing and innovating with technology on the farm. Obviously, that's sort of where the journey into innovating started. What was the next step into getting where you're up to now? It's almost hard to talk to anyone in pastoral now without talking about carbon, mm-hmm. but carbon farming's sort of presented us with an opportunity where it can de-risk the investment required to implement the level of technology that we want to. Mm-hmm. So our remote monitoring system is unique in the field, like in the entire field, because it gives us live stream videos to our water points. It gives us wireless access out there. So you've got high-speed communications to the rest of the world. You know, instead of a sat phone, you can just use your normal mobile phone, which is great for staff because any staff that you bring in these days know how to use a smartphone. So there's lower training required there and that just increases the safety. So we've been aiming to de-risk this sort of investment and we've developed it from being a bit of a geek and having a bit of a background in precision ag. Yeah. And we looked at this as being the next step in pastoral. You know, it's like when we went to very rate or to controlled traffic, you're just making the next step. To de-risk it, because it is a fairly high cost, call it experiment, but project, we've tried previously to apply for grant funding, but it appears that we didn't hit the, uh, the targets of innovation, adoption and development of technology. So 
it'll be interesting to see what projects do come out of that grant funding. Yeah, we've, we've obviously been very fortunate to spend a couple of hours here and I don't think anyone can drive around here and deny that you guys are certainly innovating when it comes to technology. You're talking about de-risking and the cost. I want to I chat now. We've, we've sort of learned a bit today about what the use of this technology is allowed for you to do, both in the business, we'll start there, but also talk to us about maybe some of the outside benefits of implementing the tech as well. So the biggest points that really come out of it is... We're sitting here where I have a coffee and some wheat bix in the morning. And while I'm doing that, I can pull my phone out and have a look at my water points. We started flying our water points so we could check them quicker. We dropped from two and a half, three days down to two and a half to three hours. And now we're dragging it down from two and a half to three hours down to 20 to 30 minutes. Having that, it means that I can be anywhere in the world and have access to my water points. It means that someone else can check in on our water points as long as we've allowed them to. And that gets another set of eyes across it. So that gives us the ability to check all of our water points every day. No matter what the weather is, we can get out there. Stations are large. You can have a part of the station, as you saw when you drove in, that you can't access because of the amount of water that's fallen. But it's another 40 k's to the next water point and it could just be one spot where you've got water, I can just log in and check it. Mm. So it's meaning that with the different rainfall patterns that you have across a property like this, you can check it. It also means that when it's very, very hot and we've had temperatures around the 50 degree mark, you can be at home in the air conditioning and check on your animals. It just makes life a lot more comfortable and why shouldn't we? You mentioned earlier when we were seeing every space that there's this lifestyle slash mental health aspect. Can you touch on a little bit about that? What actually in that aspect has it allowed you guys to do as a family, as a station in terms of having this technology implemented? In terms of the stress levels that we have, you know, you can, every pastoralist will share the same sentiment about what if that bore is down, you know, the one that I've been having trouble with. And I can just check on that whenever I want to. Biggest part about that is, means that we can go away as a family elsewhere, down to Esperance, and we can be by the coast and check out the desert. So it's just being able to give you that, that physical break from the property without the anxiety and that underlying feature of just stress about the water. And it means that you can have targeted responses. So... We've got airstrips or landing strips at every one of our water points and we've got some new aircraft on their way which can land on those airstrips. It means that it's only five hours from Esperance up to here if there's a problem and I can directly land where the problem is and get fixing it. That's so powerful. It's so fascinating. We touched a little bit but I want to get deep dive, you know, cost savings. Like, let's be real. Where, where do you think it's at? Well... The, the cost is just incredible what you can save. If you think about a bore runner, how much you've got to pay, you know, a house, internet, all your additionals, the vehicle, the maintenance on the vehicle, your diesel, you're running up to around $120,000 a year as a minimum. Yeah. But also your time. What is your time really worth? What could that person be doing that's more beneficial to your business? They could be welding up, trap gates. They could be improving the home yards. All of these jobs, which usually are at the back of the pile because water is a priority. Mm -hmm. Water, water, water. That's what this is all about. 
you can be looking at the next level. You can be working on your education, mm -hmm. bringing yourself up to a higher level. You know, mm -hmm. get involved in some of the MLA projects like Breeding Edge. You can lift your skills because you're not stressing about the water and you're not stuck on it. And it means that you can run a small crew. You can, labour costs these days are going up. People really shirk at how much it's gonna to cost to employ someone. So now you can sit easy with the fact that you're able to keep moving forwards with it and save money on it. It's pretty amazing to think how much time you guys are saving. And I think even post-COVID, the conversation is around employment and you guys are in such a remote space already that you've just saved yourself so much stress and anxiety. And what for you guys is the future of agriculture looking like? Like, where do you guys see it? What's your hope for the future and a bigger picture, but also for the station? Like, where, where are you taking it? Like, what's that next level of tech? Because I think, you know, we were having that conversation out and about. Like, 10 years ago, no one would have believed you. You'd put fixed wireless around. People probably still are going to listen to this and see the visual and not believe it. Like, what, where is it going for you guys? Well, we saw moving from sheep to all cropping and then going from blobbers to having a coverage map, yeah. the cost that we save there. We're saving a minimum of $15,000 a year in chemicals down on the cropping farm. Yeah. And that was the cost of half of one of the units. Yeah. So that's where we start bringing in that 120,000 a year savings. Where we can see agriculture going is it's gonna be automated. And people think, how the hell can you automate a pastoral property? Well, what we've determined is you need high bandwidth connectivity to be able to run everything that you want to, such as AI recognition for animals. And we're in talks with groups which are running that and how we can implement what we've got into their technology so you can identify if there's ferals, be it horses, donkeys, dogs, and even to the level of identifying your stock numbers so it can identify an individual. So you can get a good grasp of what number of cattle you actually have at a water point. And you roll into the next part where you've got virtual fencing. And if you know how many cattle at a water point, and you say, hang on a second, you've got too many, I'm going to select, and you select which group you want to take out, say the heifers, you want to move the heifers to another paddock, and you slowly move them over to the next water point, mm -hmm. and you can start controlling it. But if you run it fully to the next level where we've got satellite monitoring for the food on offer, you can determine if an area is starting to get overgrazed, or the computer can learn, to pick up the identifiers of overgrazing and decide and make a recommendation to you that, hey, maybe you should muster, maybe you should move these cattle to this other water point. And what it is, is it's going to push to the level that it's suggestions to a pastoralist about what actions they can take to improve the rangeland's condition, but also give them that solution where instead of having to call in a muster crew and move that mob of cattle, you can do it with the click of your finger. Close that automatic gate, move them across to the next point, virtual fencing, AI recognition on the cattle, just all of it from sitting, having your coffee in the morning and making those decisions while eating your breakfast. Which it gives you better business analytics. So again, it's like precision ag where you start going from where how much money we're making in a total in a year to the dollars per hectare. And you start doing your cost analysis on the dollars per hectare. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. I think a great place to finish. I mean, we're sitting in your family home with your beautiful young family. I want to ask you, what's the impact do you think, and we talked a bit before about the time availability now, what's it been like, the impact on your family unit? Oh, the days are shorter. Jack's days are shorter. He's not out all day, every day, checking on the waters. And then it's more of an environment that our growing daughters are able to go along to work with Jack. It's not as high risk or dangerous, the work that he's necessarily doing. The girls have gone out, they've installed the solar panels with Jack, they've handed him tools while he's installing the antennas up on the up the ladder on the towers. He's on the ladder, they're down on the ground, handing up the tools. And they love it and it helps Jack to develop a better connection with the kids as well. And yeah, they're He's home for lunch, he's home for dinner, he's taking the kids out with him. It's, it's made a big difference. The more that the kids go with Jack, the more that they love it. They're just developing that knowledge themselves and they love it. Yeah. Guys, thank you so much for letting us have half a day and just letting us inside your home. I think that that has been a privilege for us and to see what you guys are doing and for us to have the opportunity to help share what you're doing here is incredible and we've really appreciated it. So thanks so much. Thank you for coming. Our second station, we met with Maine and his business partner, drone pilot Nigel, who are utilising industrial-sized drones to track wild dogs. Cool memory from the trip. (laughs) People might remember our helicopters that we were sort of, what was it, sunrise. That was crazy. Such an incredible sight. So they were mustering the day that we got there and we rolled in. It was still dark and got to watch the helis taking off. And the mustering crew were all there sitting around the campfire having their morning brew. And so for us, it was just, we got to see it all in action, which is absolutely fantastic. And then we, of course, recorded this episode sitting around the campfire ourselves, which is just absolutely a core memory for me. Yeah, it was such a beautiful location. I hope people really enjoy this chat with Maine and Nigel. It was, it was pretty epic. They're very entrepreneurial and very forward-thinking and diverse. The real standout for me is just the sheer amount of time and investment that Maine and Nigel are putting into, again, solving this problem on the station. It's not a small thing that they're doing. It's a significant cost and time investment and they're really going after it. And it'll actually have a lot of benefit for the rest of the rangelands as well, which is really exciting. Yeah, I think that it's very exciting time. So let's get into that second part of the episode. Maine, do you want to start by telling us a little bit about yourself? I originated in Bunbury. We've got a cattle and sheep farm down there. And then I went to university, did an ag science degree. Uh, from there, went out to Boyup Brook for a few years. Uh, that was right at the the crash of the wool price, which is a bit harsh after I came straight out of uni, living on $40 a week. Lost my first 80 grand the first year, and that was pretty easy. Then from there, I set up a contract or went into a contract crutching make ends meet. Then from there, I moved out out of there up to Dandarigan to try and get a little bit more acreage and then moved into leasing, leasing land, just running sheep, cropping, gradually leased more and more land. But it was always just the, the cost of, of cropping that was against us. So then um, I bought some better machinery, went contracting, uh, but most of the contracting income just went back into the crop. 
And then I was getting a bit older and I thought, oh, no, I, I couldn't really see the future of that. So I got out of that, got back into stock and then sheep sort of headed north and and then I bought a little farm down at, down at Donnybrook, running cattle down there. And then we went on a bit of a tour around with a camper trailer and sort of went out into the into the southern rangelands and I thought, oh, this is really interesting seeing how everybody like runs. So I, I, when I got back, I went and saw a, a real estate agent I knew and said, I don't suppose you know anyone up here where I could just not get paid or anything, but, but just go out onto a station and see how they run, run things. And so he sent me off to this station. Obviously, it was for sale. And uh, so I spent two days. I went up for the, for the day, but uh, there was just so much to see. They said, oh, you can stay the night if you like. So I ended up staying another two days. And then when I left, I was driving out. I said, oh, I'm going to go and see my bank manager, see if I can buy that. So, But the trouble there was there was just no future in the sheep industry because of the wild dogs had sort of taken everything out. But they did tell me about this MRVC fence that potentially was going to go in. This station had the uh, the, the potential or the, the proposed fence running all the way around it. So I ended up with that one and now the fence is built. It's taken five years and so that's finished. And then we've got the, the wild dog problem. So I was sort of out there baiting and in between each of the roads, it could be 10 or 20,000 acres. So I was thinking, oh, I wonder what's in the middle of all that. So we've got the dogger that's based on our station. So I just said to him, you know, it's all in good putting these baits around the outside, but what's in the middle? And he goes, well, you don't really know, but you can sort of work out where they're coming in going from I thought oh, I'll get a drone to go in there because you can't you can't walk in there you can't drive in there you can't take a motorbike in there so but all the little leisure type drones DJIs and all that they only fly for 15 minutes and by the time you fly five minutes in and then you got five minutes there you got a five minutes out and you don't really cover the country so I hunted around to try and find somebody with a long flight drone through a friend of a friend I met Nigel and I rang him up out of the blue and just said, oh, look, I've got, got a station up there. And he said, oh, I don't know anything about farming. <laughs> so I just said, oh, well, he, hear us out. And I said, oh, can we fly a drone in there and potentially see w- what's in there? And he said, oh, that's easy. So we caught up. And then oh, I went to Alana McTiernan. She gave us some money uh, through a grant and we built, built our first drone. Just got another grant a couple of weeks ago to, to add some species recognition systems on it. And then Nigel and I were... We're chatting one day and a friend of mine just said, I don't suppose you want to buy another station, which hadn't really thought about. So I thought, oh, yeah, you could probably do that. So we bought that one. And I said to Nigel, do you want to go halves in a station? And he said, oh, yeah. So we bought that and then we got on a bit of a roll and then we bought another couple. And then I've been the one next to my original station. I'd been talking to the owner for three years over it. And then out of the blue, he just said, um, oh, yeah, I think I'll sell it. So, yeah, so just at the moment, they're waiting for ministerial approval. But this one here is our first muster, so it seems to be going all according to plan, if there is a plan. <laughs> plan 1A, we call it. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, Nigel, now's probably a great chance for you to introduce yourself and sort of your side of how you slot into this this grand adventure. Yeah, so as Maine stated, we sort of, you know, caught up over a phone call to start with about his problems with the wild dogs on the stations. My background, my parents were in, you know, poultry farms, so we ran poultry growing up. Obviously, all of us boys wanted to do something else, and so we all went and got engineering degrees, and at that time, I started flying helicopters when I was 15, and then started doing, you know, competitions around the world with aerobatic helicopters, 
Um, and then with my engineering degree, started designing helicopters for some companies in Taiwan and Singapore. Then just through that business, we started then you know, getting some investors on board. We started our own business just out of Shenzhen in China. We ran about 110 injection moulding machines, 32 CNC machines, about 68 staff, yeah, just building and manufacturing helicopters. And this was way before the drone boom, you know, and then I saw an opportunity to, you know, obviously we're a big mining company, country over here, so I saw an opportunity to do aerial mapping with helicopter systems. So we developed a drone system 18 years ago and we had some big contracts with Newcrest to do all their aerial mapping of open open pits, stockpiles, slips, uh, environmental work. And it snowballed from there. Then we got into CASA you know, certified drone training, then the drone light shows that just happened in the city. So it's always been sort of life around drones and and flying. And then, yeah, obviously Maine and I got on like a house on fire and loved the country and saw the opportunity to try and get tech in the ag space and, yeah, invest in some property. So you guys obviously connected, you started buying stations, you started to work together, but when did you really get the drones up in the air and see that it was actually combating this feral animal or particularly feral dog problem? When did that sort of start where you really knew that this was technology you could implement, not only here, but obviously moving forward on other people's stations as well? I think when we started doing the development of this new project, we worked on helicopter, it incorporated a bait carousel, um, and we probably went through four or five different design iterations, you know, just on the drawing board before we committed to, you know, completing one of them. And it was really then when we got that design finished, tested it even on the on the ground locally that we saw that, you know, 72 baits in a bait carousel just with a, you know, relatively small helicopter drone, we could cover large areas. And then it really opened our eyes to, well, if that drone can do 72 baits, get into those hard-to-reach areas, we've got roughly a 10 max kilo payload, you know, what could something with a 100 kilo payload do? You know, and that's really been our vision from the beginning, but we really had limited funding at that point from, even though Alana was absolutely amazing, we thank her so much, you know, we only had $140,000 to work with, but we really want to go down the next avenue of getting a 100 kilo drone going that can then bait, you know, complete areas like this station is. What size check are we going to write to get a 100 kilo payload on a drone? Just did a grant application for 1.3 mil. Uh, so there was emerging aviation grant that came from the federal government. So just filled that out. Oh, probably, I reckon it's probably a month ago now. So we haven't haven't heard anything back. They're processing them at the moment, but but that's what the budget was, 1.3, and that's a, um, a like a hybrid engine. So it's gasoline, electric, and uh, and that's got the 100 kilo payload. That's incredible. You mentioned to us a bit before off mics about identifying different species and what's the what's the next steps in the technology? Like, is autonomous a pathway that would work for this? Yeah, so, I mean, when Maine approached myself, you know, I run a business called Autonomous Technology and that's where all the drone space was living and, you know, we then thought that the ag space needed so much more of that autonomy. So, you know, in the drone space, feature recognition that we'd been working on with University of New England, I think that the drone should be able to fly over any pastoral lease, you know, and go through and, you know, do what we do for flora and fauna, NDVI data, have a look at, you know, what pests and weeds you've got on your property. We did a trial on one of main stations, Jingamara, for cactus infestations and did a lot of mapping there and 
you know, running software through there to create a 3D model. So, yeah, and the same issue then with the wild dogs. We see that any of those ferals, you know, we should be able to profile those, plot them where they are, give a GPS location, either drop baits there where they're found autonomously or at least give the farmer a reference to where they are and he can then go and intervene. I want to know a little bit more about I guess the response you're getting from other pastoralists, but also the value that you guys are seeing on the station and the amount of technology that you're implementing and what it's actually done for how the station's running and how you're actually able to make a profit and see a future that's sustainable as well. We're like right at the very beginning of implementing all this technology. So a lot of it is based around drone tech and the new satellite system from um, Starlink. So we think that in the future, the time you've got up in the air with a drone is limited. So if you've only got like a 10 or 12 hour flight time or the one we've got at the moment is only an hour and a half, which is still a lot compared to your local DJI that's only 15 minutes. While we're in the air, if we can get maximum amount of smarts on the machine and do the maximum number of jobs while it's in the air, that's that's where your efficiency comes in. Mm. And so, you know, ultimately we'll have like a like a Wi-Fi mesh. So your phones will work anywhere, anytime. Mm. The Wi-Fi mesh will join all the five stations all together. So and it's a safety thing as well. If you've got guys mustering out in the middle of nowhere, they can jump on their phone or if they see something that needs somebody else's attention, they'll say, Oh, can someone come out and give us a hand? So it sort of it gets rid of that isolation and it sort of helps with the safety side of it as well. And then you've got your animal welfare side where because all these these stations will all have their carbon project on as well. So ultimately we sort of think that you could have a drone flying around with a LIDAR system on it which measures your above ground biomass and then also have your smart tags and smart tags in your cattle uh, and or sheep. And, uh, and then you've got a tag reader in your in your drone, so your drone will be flying along, measuring how much above ground biomass you have, and then putting that back to a reference point and saying, well, that biomass there, there's so many cattle here, it's eating it below your carbon sequestration amount, but over here, um, it's the other way around. So hopefully, in the future, that the drones can just move your cattle into a bit better area, and then that way you can sort of graze over your, your entire property all at once. We're also interested in this um, virtual fence tech, which is where you have a collar on. They're doing some work up at Hammersley Station with Rio yeah. on that, so we're watching that, and that's just another tool where you, where you don't have to spend a whole heap of money building big fence. You can just draw one on your phone and, you know, potentially you could run a, run a fence around your cattle and then run a laneway to the yards and then just let them walk into the yards on their own. Imagine, you know, having as many properties in the portfolio as you have, be able to create efficiencies wherever you can is paramount to the success of your business. Oh, it is, yeah. Yeah, and labour's getting harder and harder to find. You wouldn't know it around here. There seems to be everybody. <laughs> people you got people around. volunteering. <laughs> I think being carbon conscious as well. You know, if we can get electronic drones and stuff like that doing mill runs and some fence line inspections at the same time they're doing other jobs, then... You know, carbon conscience is definitely a thing today. Absolutely. I want to quickly circle back to Vinny's question about the response from other pastoralists. Like, how ready do you think the rangelands are to innovate and work with technology like this? Oh, really ready, I think. Yeah, I think people are, you know, might be out out sort of away from the city-centric life that a lot of people see, but no, pastoralists are very, um, very good 
at uptaking technology. Because you can see the technology's gone into the cropping industry and that's right at the top end now. And the pastoral industry, people are putting in water monitoring, it's really quite common. And I think it's just gonna depend on um, on the cost of it. But I think people understand that that technology is something that's gonna come into every facet of agriculture and uh, and the rangelands is the same. Yeah. And before we wrap up, I guess we are talking about the forefront of technology in this space, but what do you both see for the future of agriculture? What are you really hoping that in 20 years' time we're seeing on stations that's just a, you know, average normal thing to implement? I think definitely, you know, complete Wi-Fi mesh across every station is the holy grail to aim for. Um, Then it makes rolling out any technology, you know, much more user-friendly. And then obviously virtual fencing and trying to limit the amount of infrastructure that you're putting into a property to make it sustainable. I like the idea of running less cattle than's run at the time now, having a, a carbon income as well, and then just having your technology sit in the middle of all that. So you can do your conservation, I'm quite interested in history, and then you're running less cattle, so they've always got feed to eat, and then have your technology in terms of monitoring. And last question, obviously you've just put in the huge big grant application, but what else are you guys working on in the next sort of 12 months? What, what's sort of going on across your portfolio that we're going to see? Uh, we just got awarded a grant a week or two ago, and that's to do species recognition on the drone. So the idea is there that if you've got, like, because camels come in and they, they won't let your cattle drink, so the idea is to know when they're coming in, where they are, and then you can either shunt them out or intervene. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, so we're just waiting on that one, and then we'll be straight into the species recognition. Yeah. Yep. Cool. Perfect. Well, that's it, guys. That's all we needed, and that was amazing. So thank you both so much for your time, and thanks for letting us come out here. We so appreciate it. What an epic sunrise. Yeah, you're very yeah, welcome. Worked out well, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. A lovely morning. Such a treat. Thank you so much for listening to this special episode in partnership with the Southern Rangelands Pastoral Alliance and the Future Drought Fund. Don't forget to use the hashtag Future Drought Fund and share this with your friends on Instagram, on Facebook, on Twitter, on TikTok and LinkedIn. I'm probably missing some, but share away. <laughs> and YouTube because we've got videos as well. We will. We will be on YouTube. And hopefully you all enjoyed seeing this series. And we can probably say we will have some more series like this coming soon. Yeah. A huge thank you to the Southern Rangelands Pastoral Alliance for working with us on this series. It has been I can't state this enough, and I know I speak for Vinny, an absolute privilege to go and visit these pastoralists, and we hope you enjoy. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Generation Ag. We hope you loved it. If you did, don't forget to visit our guest bios page on our website where you can get all of their contact information. And if you have an idea for another guest in the future or a story that you want to hear, you can get in touch with us via our email, which is hello at generationag.com.au. Don't forget to follow us on our socials at generation.ag. That's Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. And if you've loved this episode as well, you can share it with your friends on your socials and make sure to subscribe to us on the podcast app and leave us a review because that all really helps as well. Thanks, guys. Bye.